0: All right, boom, baby. Okay, today we're going to dive into how to make millions in a recession. Um, Like when I go through this, I'm not going to give you, so to speak, a step-by-step process as in like you have to be in this industry doing this thing because the reality is, is you can be, you can really make millions in any types of industries. What you need is kind of the guiding post that will allow you to take and implement individual pieces that you can put in these specific industries then will allow you to be able to, to take and move forward. Okay. And so here's a, here's kind of a, here's kind of the first one I want to take and I'll, I'll show it to you and then I'll kind of go into the details behind it is during a, like, you've got to take and figure out how to eliminate dependencies on partic- any one particular client. Now, what do I mean like this? Okay. When I had the, when I worked in the flooring business, I had, I had uh, I'd kind of I'd necked it down to the kind of the primary clients that I really wanted to work with, which what it really was is I would necked it down to about one to two clients. Um, I had a whole bunch of them. We actually ended up weeding all of them, weeding out a bunch of them that uh, we'd prefer just to work with just a couple of the big ones. Well the problem is, is it created a dependency on just one or two clients. And what happened is, is when things changed, which like you can see in this environment, things are changing all of a sudden what used to be a gravy train turned into a no train and things just kind of vanished. But to mitigate and to protect our side, ourselves from the downside, if you've got many clients, then in that case, you do have zero dependency on any individual one. Therefore, if one takes a, takes a dump, then you're not, you're not left holding, a, holding the bag. Does that make sense? And so just start going out there and looking for ways that you have multiple streams of income or multiple ways or methodologies that would allow you to pull revenue in. Okay. And one of the secrets is, is like during this, when you're talking with clients and stuff, the the language that used to work has taken a shift. Now, what do I mean? Like when the economy booming and everything's kind of on the upside language that you talk to people about is os- uh, opportunities and possibilities and, how you're going to be able to make money and how you're going to be able to create the good life and all kinds of stuff that what happened is, is in this time people are into a defensive mode and you're like, look, this is how it's going to take and save you. This is how it's going to take and reduce the, your monthly expenses. <clears throat> this is how it's going to protect your business. Like the language, instead of being moving towards pleasure, it's going to be shifting a lot more towards moving away from pain. People want to be able to figure out how to survive this environment. And so your language is going to start changing. And so we're going to go in here and eliminate dependencies on one client. But the way we talk to them is in a sense that we talk about moving away from pain um, so that we are in, in essence saying we could do this thing. And this thing would protect you from uh, the market downturn, the stock market, protect your business from from any particular one client collapsing or whatever it is. But it's moving away from pain type uh, conversations. And so that's one big nugget that you can start diving into that will take and it'll give you some protection and buoyancy during this economic environment. Okay. Number two is you got to take and reinvent yourself. Like I I just got done listening to the book, uh, Sam Walton. If you haven't read that, Sam Walton in the later years of his life, he went through and he started talking about Walmart and literally he went and started talking about the elements of Walmart, how they went about creating, how they went about building that business. And one of the biggest things that he said is people are always saying, oh, this little company is going to go under, this little company is this, little company is going to go, you know, like they don't think that he could take and take this little chain that he had created from just a teeny bootstrap and store into something enormous. And the big thing that Sam Walton did during that entire process is he constantly was focusing on how do I reinvent myself? How do I take and I do this different? Like when you start looking at they have, they have these, uh, KPIs, uh, uh key uh, performance indicators, KPIs. And what it is is there's key things inside your business that you want to then measure the output or the performance. So you know whether or not you're actually on target and on track. And one of his key uh, KPIs was, is that, um, like his overhead and his administrative expenses could not exceed 2% of sales. Now, if you go back and you look at like other companies that his competitors, they were sitting around 5%. And so by literally figuring out how to keep his costs lower because he was trying to, it was, he felt that it was relevant that he had that they had metrics and measurements to control how they allowed their overheads to grow. And by keeping it at 2%, he naturally created more profit margin and he naturally created a massive competitive edge over his competitors. And so he remained in a state of consistently reinventing himself. And so like he didn't, when he got into this, um, you know, everybody else had these business models under the sense that people would take um, like distribution, they would take and allow like, like. Companies to take and to bring products and distribute to the store, but what he ended up discovering is he referred to it as tractors that he would get. Uh, they're semis, that's what they really are, but he referred to them as tractors. But he get these semis um, out on the road, and he would actually start delivering, and he actually started managing his own supply chain. What it did is it made it so that he could literally get inventory to stores more efficiently. He was able to actually drop the cost of of his logistics and stuff. And he said that people just kept pushing him and pushing him to get these, like this, so to speak, data center um, with this information and technology that allowed him to keep track of inventories, keep track of things and track stuff. And he, he said he was super resistant, but the reason he did it is because he got the right people on the bus, like people he knew that this is, this is people that he needed to be around to influence them. And they helped him reinvent himself by discovering that the way the industry was doing their business, he literally was started swimming against the tide. He got to the point where like he had thousands, he had a couple thousand at the time, or at least when in the book, I'm sure he's got more than this now, but he had a couple thousand semis taking and distributing a product all across the United States for him and his teams. And That was just not common. And so he started figuring out what could I do different? How could I reinvent myself? And like literally things that people hadn't thought of um, that seemed kind of corny, he would take and he would implement these things so that he could start figuring out how do I make a difference? How do I take and allow like uh, frontline managers or even down to the associate level inside these stores? These guys are the closest to my customer. What is it? that they could do and concepts they could come up with that would allow us to help reinvent exactly how we're doing it. So like you saw, like you go into Walmart and they've got uh, like a neighborhood greeter, right? Like he found that he get, he pushed authority down into stores and what he discovered is, is inside these stores that trying to, he would, he would reward employees if they could actually get uh, what they call shrinkage down. And what I mean shrinkage is, is theft. They were trying to figure out ways and methodologies they could use to control their theft. And, and one of them was, is like, if you can keep your theft under this percent, then you can actually participate in profits from the store as a result of that. Okay. But then one of the stores did is they're like, all right, so let me take and implement a methodology that would allow me to keep my shrinkage under control. And so they put a a greeter there. The greeter there was designed to, invite people and to say hello but it was also at the same time he was standing there at the door so that as people were in a position where they wanted to rip stuff off that he was also standing there to be able to say hey like I don't think you paid for that or whatever it is okay it really served twofold and the main focus and the reason it was implemented it was implemented in a specific store to control shrinkage and then once Sam Walton went into the store and he saw what they were doing and then he understand the concept behind it He then said, this is crazy. Everybody ought to do this. And so then he literally started having pushing that concept out to different stores. And that's where they had the kind of the aha moment that that was a significant way to take and reduce shrinkage. And so it's kind of funny, right? When you think about it, you didn't realize that maybe that's exactly why he was there, but that is why he was there. And so think about what is it that you could do that you could reinvent yourself? Because the solution that you had yesterday might not be adequate for the solution that you need today. And if you get stuck and resting on your laurels, you could actually get pounded in this economic downturn instead of taking and thriving. Like you take a Sam Walton and you put him in some of these environments. He can actually thrive more in a recession. Just take people pull back and try to figure out how to cut costs. Okay. He's a master of it. And so reinvent yourself, swim against the tide a bit. Okay. Number three. So, We, everybody knows, everybody intuitively knows that you, when you invest or whatever you do, you buy low, sell high, right? The thing is, is it's, it's, it's intuitive, but it doesn't mean that it's being practiced. Now there's a big difference. And it seems like stupid Mike, why would you tell me to buy low, sell high? Because it goes against your DNA in the sense that like you understand it, but you don't implement what you understand. And so if you ask me, Mike, what are you doing right now? I'm buying low. Like when I see stocks that are low and things that are selling at discounts. you buy low, sell high. If you can't buy when they're low, when are you going to buy? You're going to buy when they're high. And so like right here, right now is an opportunity to take in, start reinventing yourself. Now maybe you're not interested in stocks. Okay. But it does not change the fact that you can't position yourself so that you're more prepared. Let me give you an example. They, uh, I used to work for a, a company called Raytheon Missile Systems, and one of my suppliers. I mean, it, it, was, it was fun to watch this guy, how he operated. He, he was in the Chicago area, and he had a machine shop. And what happened is, is every time the recession would hit, he, would, like, he was kind of a frugal guy, right? And he had a habit of saving and making sure that he had plenty of cash on hand because he never knew when the opportunity was going to show up to be able to buy low so that he could actually later date sell high. And so what he would discover is, is he would work and he would grow his business and he would stay right inside this little, this, this facility. Okay. But as soon as a recession would hit all of a sudden real estate and assets, these things that used to be highly valuable, all of a sudden people started like they, they wouldn't part with it before when, when times are good, but because they didn't, they didn't make sure that their business and their selves were in, 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 a good, strong financial position to the point that they would actually kind of go belly up. Right. And since he knew human nature and he knew that that's how people behave, he actually anticipated it. So when the opportunity of presented itself, he could do it. And so he'd work in this facility, he would accumulate money, collect cash and capital. And then when the recession would hit, you know, just slightly on the outskirts of town, you know, people had kind of gone out there because it was actually cheaper. Right. And, and so they would set up these facilities and they'd build these incredible facilities And I remember this time where he's like, he slid in and he built, he bought like this, I don't know, it was like a hundred thousand, 150,000 square foot facility. Like this thing was enormous, but he bought it for pennies on the dollar. Like at the time, I can't remember what his cost per square foot, like what his acquisition price is. But when he, when he said it to me, I'm like, like, dang, that is like stupid cheap. Like you would be, you would be very, very, very hard pressed to build that facility for that price, uh, to acquire the, maybe even acquire even the land at that price. He got the land and the facility. It's like he, it's almost like he bought the land at a discount and then got the facility for free. And I remember that's what it was. Um, and, and so what he did is like, he bought this killer facility and he's like, boom, now i got, now I've got all kinds of room for expansion. And so then he could then take and he could transition his business into that facility um, and he could operate on, operate out of it in a very, very low cost mode. In fact, it gave him a competitive advantage over his competitors because they had maybe built facilities or done different things where their actual carrying overhead costs were higher. And his was so low that, that it, he, he had a competitive advantage by the fact that his overhead was low, Right. And so then he's inside this facility, and then when the economy turns around, which it does, then he took the facility that he previously had, and he sells it at normal market price. Boom, somebody else gets to slide into this. And, and, and it's okay that it's configured for a machine shop in this case. They could transform it to whatever, but it doesn't change the fact that his overhead structure on his new deal is cheaper than the overhead structure on his last deal, or at least compared to, compared to what they had. And so he would position himself and do all kinds of acquisitions in that sense. I know of, a, I know of another guy. He's a real estate developer. Okay? And what he does, like last time in 2000, like 2008, 2009, when the market crashed, 2009, the market crashed. And all of these builders that had all this land and stuff, they just got in all kinds of trouble. Uh, and then they had to figure out how to liquidate their assets because they were not in a strong economic position. But the way he operated was that he is going to be in a very strong position. And so when they started selling off their assets because they needed money to pay their bills, he's like, boom, he slid in there, scooped it up, scooped it up, scooped it up, scooped it up. So now he's got phenomenal land that may or may not have been developed, but he bought the things so dang cheap compared to what they were selling previously that he could continue to throw up houses during a recession because his costs were so low that he could still pull clients in and sell it. Does that make sense? And so what I'm looking at is you've got to take and to think what things could you do or could you acquire during this economic downturn? Last time when the world fell apart, um, I formed a partnership and we went shopping. We went shopping, we started buying real estates and started buying up all kinds of doors and rentals and properties and stuff. And I'm talking properties that could generate a thousand dollars a month rent during that time, okay? And I had mortgages of like 369 bucks. That is property, that's taxes, uh, insurance, the loan, that's everything. Everything was rolled up into like 369 bucks a month. and these homes were selling for 250 thousand um, bucks. I scooped them up for like 75 grand. Um the reality is is I was owning assets that were like dirt stinking cheap and they cash flowed day one, even if it was a recession. Like other people were people like some of maybe some of my competitors were like they, you know, it was it was questionable whether or not those businesses or those those rentals are gonna slide into short sell or whatever. Um mine wasn't, mine I was good. Um, and rent, and renters that came and rented from me, it worked out great. I took and I offered them a, a lease-to-own option. Like I literally gave these guys an option to be able to buy this home, and if they wanted that option, um, I would actually allow part of their payment go, to go towards equity. Um, in fact, depending on if they were willing to pay, so what I did on one of them, just give you an idea, is I said, "Look, like I would, I would take." And I would rent this out for say eight hundred bucks a month. But um, if you're willing to do a lease-own on this house, um, I'll give you an option where it's a thousand bucks a month. But two hundred dollars a month. Actually, I think I made it so that three hundred dollars a month of that actually went towards equity in the house. And I'm like, so there you go. Now you got building up equity so that when you buy it, uh, you got this equity in it. And I said, now if you were willing to do twelve hundred dollars a month. Um, I would actually reduce it down to, I think it was like, so 600, 600 of it was like towards rent and 600 was towards equity, but I made it so that they could actually, they could actually be able to buy this house. And I made a strike price that was fair. And so that they could buy this house and it would allow them to accumulate a lot of equity. Now, not everybody actually took me up on the deal in the sense that they, they, it's kind of funny how humans are. So they signed up for the deal. They got a smoking deal, um, allowed them to buy this house at a discount. Right. But like people, things change and they're like, you know what? Um, I'm not going to be able to go through with the purchase of this house. So um, I'm going to just take it back out. But the contract did not say that, like, if you back out, I'm going to reimburse you all that money. What it said is, is you're stepping into this. You got, you got an option to be able to buy it. This is how it's going to work. And if you back out, then you just backed out and you just gave it up. You forfeited it. Okay. Um, that's kind of like, if you look at the stock market, people purchase options to be able to buy stuff. Okay. It's a common practice. People will do you, you purchase, you purchase the right to be able to purchase the thing and you can lock in the price of a thing for a long time, but it's little tricks like this that allow you to reinvent and discover how you can invest into the future that can create a tremendous opportunity for you so during a recession, I had some of these rentals that were delivering 1200 bucks a month uh, with a mortgage of like 400 bucks or less. Does that make sense? So anyway, those are kind of like those are three guiding posts here. Let's do a quick recap. OK, so one, let's get rid of dependencies on any one particular client. And as we start talking to folks and clients and whatnot, we need to use language that starts moving away, moving like moving away from pain. We're not, we, what, it's probably not going to sell if you start talking a whole lot of moving towards pleasure, towards the, the good life. Although they want it right now, the big thing that's motivating people is to be able to escape pain. So talk about how to get away from pain. Two, reinvent yourself. Discover what you could do or what you should be doing in your business that may or not, that it might even be swimming against the trend or the tide in your current environment. But start reinventing yourself and swimming against it. Like if you, uh, if you ever listen to like Mitt Romney. Um, Mitt Romney, he, like one of the things he'd say, it's like every two years you have got to reinvent your business because if you re- don't reinvent your business, somebody else will copy and model your business to take all the profits away. And so he is in a constant state of figuring out how to reinvent himself, reinvent himself, what new products should come into line, what new things, what new system, what new places or, or processes or whatever but he's in a constant state of re- reinventing himself. Like you'll look at a company like BlackBerry. BlackBerry, had they cornered the entire market. They had it, and they, but they forgot one thing. They forgot how to be flexible and to reinvent themselves, and then they got scalped by Apple and Google. So you got to think through it. How do I reinvent myself? What is it that I could do that would reinvent me to give myself a competitive advantage? And then three is like, how can I invest right now? The idea is to buy low, sell high. So is there a new property, plant, equipment? Is there, is there a way that maybe, maybe you're not going to dive into that? Maybe what you can do is you can just say, look, I can see the stock market. Buy low, sell high. I remember, remember one of my neighbors, he, he, worked, at a, he was, worked at a school and he was so frustrated because the stock market dropped all the way down to the bottom. And he was so frustrated. I was like, God, it will not allow me to sell my stocks. I want to sell it. I don't want to be involved in this anymore. I'm like, dude, why would you ever sell low? And he, and he was so frustrated about it and he wanted to do it. And I was like, holy cow, dude, you are so lucky that they're, they will not allow you to sell it as long as you're still in the school system and so that you bail out at the bottom. And and so they did it, and guess what the stock market did? It went back, and it went back way higher than it was before the recession. And fortunately for him, he didn't get scalped because they wouldn't allow him out. Okay, what happens? It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like you're in the kitchen, okay? And like when the stock market gets overpriced, it's like a it's like a steaming hot stove. It's so hot that if you would put your hand on it, you would get burnt because you're almost guaranteed the stock market will cause you to you get burnt because everybody's paying way too much and they're paying ridiculous prices for assets, okay? That's what happens when people get over-exuberant, over But what could also happen is is the stock market could take a dump and the stove could turn into a stone-cold stove, meaning that the stock market itself probably is not gonna go down a heck of a lot more. And if it did, Like it doesn't have a heck of a lot more to go before you're like, oh, my gosh. Like it it just there's a there's there's like this lower level floor that can kind of kick in. And when things are so cheap and you could be able to buy those things, it's like, so what if it went down more like the stove is stone cold. But the problem is, is when people get burnt on a hot stove, they then become afraid of touching a cold stove. And, and it's like, it, it, it doesn't seem like it intuitively we should see it different. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's intuitively we should see it different. I was talking to my friend who is an accountant, owns an accounting business, does like all kinds of accounting for all these companies. And I started talking to him about stocks, stocks and investing and stuff. And I was like floored that the guy whose business it is to work with businesses to figure out their accounting and stuff like the fact that I was talking to him about stocks and being able to buy stuff, it was kind of like foreign to him. I'm like, like, what do you like? I mean, I was polite, but I was just, I was just like dumbfounded that a dude that's in accounting, which is the language of business would be saying, yeah, I'm not really sure about that. And I don't, I like, I haven't looked into it. I'm like dude, like business is the language of money. You can go out there and you can look at somebody's books and you can assess how they're doing. Right. Okay. Go look at a, the, the, the stock of some of these businesses, look and look at their books and assess how they're doing, and then when you see that they're trading at a ridiculously cheap price, you're like, "Well, I mean, if you're good enough to do accounting, you should be able to be able to calculate return on investment, internal rate of return, and all these different measures and metrics to be able to analyze if something's a good deal or a bad deal and if the average price of a stock is say it's fifteen times earnings and if it's fit normally it's 15 times earnings and if it drops down to six times earnings or eight times earnings, that's a discount. Okay. And if it tur- normally is at 15 times earnings and it's all of a sudden trading at 25 times earnings, that's a ridiculous price to pay. If you look at the S and P 500 historically, historically the S and P 500 is traded at like just shy of 15 times earnings. Okay. During this last over exuberant height, we've got up to 25 times earnings. Like at 25 times earnings, the stock market had 10 times earnings that it could fall just to get normal again. And what's crazy is, is even in this current environment, that did not necessarily completely happen. I think it got down to like 17 times earnings, which is still in my mind, if I look at the S&P 500, it's still overpriced. But the thing that happened is there was a trigger that went off where – like, if you're on the S&P 500, somehow people have a belief that, like, these companies, and, and it's true, they they are the best of the best. Therefore, they should weather the storm. Therefore, they deserve to get, like, a premium uh, PE ratio. Okay? It's fine, except normally S&P 500 is 15 times earnings, and it still is trading at 17, 18 times earnings. Okay? But in the stock market, not every company um, – Maintained an overpriced position of 15 times earnings. I bought stocks that went all the way down to four times earnings, two times earnings, because people seem to think that these companies are going to go out of business. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? Um, take one like Carnival. Okay. Carnival made money during every single recession. Like they paid a, a ridiculous dividend It made money during every recession. So there is the problem that people may or may not go get back on ships for a while. The question is, is, does Carnival have enough cash in their checking account and liquidity that would allow them to carry through that environment? And the fed came in, they took, and they provided financing at, at low interest rates. Um, Carnival's got liquidity for like a year. Okay. Like you can't anticipate Everything part of investing is being able to take calculated best based on arithmetic to determine the future value of a set of assets and whether or not the future value of those assets are going to bring you a return. And so one of your strategies is, is you pick out a diversified portfolio and then you can start going. Like I'll give you an example. So I said, okay, Carnival, is it historically a good company? Yes. Historically, does it pay a dividend? Yes. Okay. Is it going to, is there a possibility that could go out? Yes. Is the probability kind of low? Yes. Okay. Got it. Then I look at like Simmons property group, for example, it's the, it's the largest mall owner in the United States. Very well run company, excellent company. Then the question is, so they, their price is normally way, way higher. Their, their PE ratio. It's like maybe down to eight or so. I can't remember what it is. Um, And their dividend yield at this, this point is like 16%. It's like stupid Carnival's is around 16%. So, all right, maybe they pull back on the dividend in the interim in this pinch. Okay. But nevertheless, that is an excellent company. And the question is, is does it have the ability to weather the storm? And the, the answer is, is it's possible it doesn't. But if you start finding a basket of companies that fit this profile and you were to pack those into your portfolio, like Yeah. One's going to probably blow up. It's possible, but you're, you're diversifying your bets with a basket of companies that are phenomenal, that the market is not going to move against all of them and destroy them. These guys are, these guys are smart. They know how to market, they know how to do their business. And so you could buy a basket of these assets and then protect yourself. Okay. And so when I look at this is there's all kinds of ways that you can jump, jump into this to invest. But the reality is is you buy low, sell high, and now on many companies, it's low, okay? So anyway, that is that's kind of like a three-step approach, just major guiding posts that will show you how to make millions in a recession, okay? So this is a Rags and, rich, uh, rags and Riches transformation. Um, I look forward to helping you guys. So we will talk later. Bam!